Welcome. Good morning, everyone. Thanks, Natalie. It is a privilege to be with you guys this morning. Um, yeah, just excited to be picking up in this series in Genesis. And, and man, I know for me, it's been, a, it's been an interesting past couple weeks of just looking at sin in Genesis. You know, Josh brought this word on the first sin um, it, with Adam and Eve. And then last week we talked about Cain and Abel and the first murder that takes place in the Bible. And as I've been thinking about sin and, and just what sin looks like in my own life, one of the things that I constantly come back to, like a, a heart-level root of sin, is pride. I grew up in a kind of more works-based environment, and I think what accompanies that is whether it be academics or athletics, there's this desire to prove myself, and, and that at times leads to pride and at other times leads to insecurity. And so as I was thinking about that struggle, uh, I thought about uh, kind of the story from when I attended our church's leadership training program in Colorado Yay, got to plug that somehow. There's still time to sign up. Uh, just kidding. Um, it's going on already. But um, at LT, you meet all kinds of people. Uh, people come from all over the country and the world to work at the Y. And so I met this guy who was actually a collegiate cross-country runner at the University of Colorado, Colorado Springs, and was using the summer in Estes Park to do high-altitude training. Um, you guys may know, uh, I sort of pretend to be a runner, and I used to pretend a little bit more to be a runner. Um, so I uh, instantly kind of bonded with this guy. We started talking about times, but then pride crept in. And I realized, like, wait, I think I could be faster than this guy. And that part of me that's always wanted to be a collegiate athlete, that's wanted to excel in that area, really took over. And, and I mean, jealousy a little bit, too. Um, and that didn't lead to any kind of direct confrontation that summer. Like, we just hung out, we talked. I admired his work ethic. He seriously was a very dedicated guy. Um, but as I continued, like, as we left that summer, I continued to kind of follow him. He would post about his workouts on social media, um, which is always a fun thing. And um, <laughs> for some reason, this is so, so sad, what stuck in my head was this workout that he had done called the Manitou Incline um, in Colorado Springs. And for those of you who don't know what that is, I have a picture. Um, this is like three different views, uh, but basically it is 2,000 feet of elevation gain and less than like a horizontal mile. So it's pretty intense, and it actually gets steeper as the photos show as you go. And so at the end, you're basically just like climbing a cliff. Um, and so I remembered, for some reason, the celebratory post he had made, he had done the Manitou incline in under 20 minutes. And I'm like, that's nothing. Like, I can run a mile in, like, six minutes. Like, 20 minutes, what? Um, and so, two years later, I go back to Colorado, um, and I'm working for an engineering company. I go and visit a friend down in Colorado Springs. I have some free time. So with no training, I'm like, now is the time for me to prove that my pride is correct. I am going to do the Manitou Incline in under 20 minutes. Um, and that did not happen. Uh, <laughs> so I, I went and did it, um, and started off feeling pretty good, but it really wears at you. And so by the end, I was just taking 10 steps at a time, and then I'd stop, and I'd like, you know, sit like this for a couple minutes, and then I'd keep going. Um, and, and yes, it, the time was 27 minutes, in case anyone really cares. Humble brag there a little bit. But um, as I've been thinking about this, you know, Genesis and what we've been learning about sin, I think I think of this because what we're seeing is an escalating narrative of sin. We start with something that seems so innocent, you know, the small, small act of disobedience. But even last week, we saw it spiral into murder. And as we continue to look at Genesis this week, we're going to see how that continues to grow in humanity, that continues to flourish. Um, and I think just like the, the humbling that I had 
through, you know, a, a very steep kind of escalation. I want us to spend some time reflecting on our brokenness, being humbled by it. And as, as hard as that can be, as uncomfortable as that can be, I actually think just like getting to the top of Manitou Incline gave you a really good view, it gives us a really good view of God's mercy and fills us with hope. So that's kind of where we're going today, that only when we are humbled uh, by our brokenness can we embrace true hope in God. Um, now to get there, we're going to have to do some work because this uh, passage, it's Genesis 4, 17 through 26, if you want to go ahead and start flipping there, um, it is the first of many genealogies in the book of Genesis, which is, I'm sure, something that all you guys love, you spend time reading and reflecting on deeply. Um, actually, can I just get like an honest show of hands? Who has, while reading the Bible, just totally skipped over a genealogy before? We're honest. Great. <laughs> um, so I'm in that same boat, and so uh, I just kind of wanted to lay out a couple things about genealogies. Um, again, I think overall, it, the fact that these are in here is a reminder that the Bible, while it's written for us, is not written to us, and so we really have to do some work to try to understand what God's trying to communicate. So first off, genealogies, there's different types, um, and that's important. Um, because different types shape how we understand them. Uh, the one that we're going to be looking at today is a vertical genealogy. It traces a line from one person to another person. Um, and when we see this, we have to look at who does it start with, and who does it end with, and why might we be tracing that path? What is important about that? Second, there are going to be additional details in genealogies. So it's not just names and ages and all that kind of stuff. Um, and sometimes the Holy Spirit is trying to highlight things through the text by including these additional details, and we'll see that a little bit today. Third, uh, genealogies serve a kind of literary function within the book where they frame the, the narrative, and they're meant in that sense to interact with it. They're going to provide continuity between stories while kind of allowing us to accelerate time-wise. And so we can kind of track themes from previous and, and narratives and then anticipate even what might be coming and then lastly, they simply just allow us to track the human story. That's probably pretty obvious, but I think it's important to note um, that we're going to see humans multiplying. That's important. That's how we get here. Um, and then we're going to see the blessings of God and the curse of sin continuing to play out. So there's a lot more about genealogies. There's some really cool stuff about patterning and names and, you know, stuff that I'm not educated or able to talk on. Um, but hopefully that gets us excited to dive into this passage. So, uh, open up Genesis 4, uh, starting again in verse 17. So Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after his son, the name of his son Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives, the name of one was Ada and the name of the other was Zillah. Ada bore Jabel. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Nema. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. So before we dive into this, uh, I think there's some really obvious questions that present themselves at the start of this. 
Like, Cain just killed his only sibling. Who did he marry? And he just killed his only sibling. How does he build a city? And again, I think this kind of makes us pause and consider what lens we're importing as we read the Bible. Um, All the details are not present. We are not reading a history textbook, and we're not even necessarily reading a chronological account of things. And so I think when we, when we see things and we have questions like this, this is just a reminder that we need to maybe ask ourselves, why might God be communicating it this way, as opposed to just getting frustrated by our, you know, maybe unmet expectations? I think a really practical example of this is that, like, I'm up here talking, you know, I probably have like 25 minutes or so left of this talk. Um, I spent a lot more than 25 minutes preparing this talk. And so I'm not giving you everything that I researched or found or even that was cool. Um, There is a message and there's a point. And I think when we look at the Bible, we have to consider that God, while he is presenting, you know, human history to us, he is not presenting the entirety of human history. There is a message that he has for us. And that being said, there are practical answers. Uh, It seems like Adam and Eve, we see in chapter five, they had other kids. Cain most likely married his sister. That's just part of the equation of having one family, you know, fill the whole earth and subdue it. We can talk about that another time. Um, (laughs) Not recommended today, we'll say that. Um, But, so yeah, we see see Cain multiplying, um, and I actually, I think the language there is really cool. It says Cain knew his wife, um, and the word there in Hebrew is yada. Um, It means to intimately know, or is translated making love, which means in the first 10 minutes of this talk, I've covered genealogies and making love, so it's going great. Um, but I, I actually think this is a really cool picture because um, of the Genesis 2 picture of marriage that we had, that this couple was naked and unashamed. And while, you know, Cain has been cast from the presence of God, he's still able to enjoy some of the things that God blessed humanity with, that they can know each other intimately, not, not fully, not perfectly, but in this moment of, of multiplying, we, we, we kind of hearken back to that. And this brings us to the idea of common grace that Caleb talked about last week, that God sends his reign both on the righteous and on the unrighteous. He blesses us and and is merciful to us that even though humanity has rebelled against him, they still are allowed to experience the great and good things of his creation. And we see as Cain's family multiplies, they are also developing civilization. We see that a city is built, and then we, we later on see that people are developing farming technology and music and culture and tools and metalwork and all these things. And as people, as I was researching, people have a lot of different views on what God might be trying to communicate by, by throwing this into the line of the first murderer in the Bible. Some people are like, see, I knew cities were of the devil. Like, they're just evil because they come from a murderer. And then other people are like, well, look at all the good that this guy's done and like this family has done despite their brokenness. Clearly, like we, we can overcome everything. You know, there's this great humanist spirit. And those are, those are the extremes, and I'm presenting them that way on pur- purpose because I think it kind of reflects the struggle that we can have as a culture in the church, as citizens of a different nation, to understand how we interact with culture today. And I think I'd actually caution us against both of those conclusions as we consider human civilization, development, technology, advancement, all those things. Um, Because one, to address that first point, cities are not of the devil. God actually instructs later on his people to build cities. But on the flip side of that coin, 
there's details in the genealogies that are going to caution us from having a totally optimistic view of human development. You know, we see that the first city is named after the son of Cain. And there's something in that that Cain is working on building a name for himself. He's, he's creating a legacy. It's about his own fame. And this ties in with a story that we're going to see later in Genesis, the Tower of Babel, where humans come together to make a name for themselves by building a city. And God harshly opposes that. There's a lot more clues throughout this passage that, despite all the good, it might not be all good. But I think really we see that in Lamech. And again, just in terms of the genealogy, it ends with him. So I think we have to spend some particular time focusing on him. And we see that the first detail about him is that he is married to women. And this comes two chapters after God clearly states his intent for marriage is that two would become one. It's clear that he is deviating from God's design. And we also see him openly boasting in his sin in this song. And we'll kind of talk more about that. But I think now I just want to point out that through the line of human advancement, through all the good, sin is still present. Sin is persisting and permeating through all that we do as humans. And I think a a, a kind of connection to to Scripture, James 3 talks about how as humans we've figured out how to control horses. We can steer big ships with this really small rudder, but we can't actually control our tongues. There's this problem of human brokenness that in spite of all that we can do, all the good things that God allows us to experience that we have not been able to solve. And it's important to talk about this because we live in a society that is obsessed with advancement. We are accelerating. I mean, just to think about like microchip and computer technology over the last 25 years, like, I mean, our, my phone is seven years old, I think. And Steph is like, it's so bad. It's so terrible. Uh, sorry. <laughs> uh, it is. It is bad sometimes. But um, in the midst of all the good things, you know, like indoor plumbing and, I mean, wave runners. Like, have you ever been just on a wave runner and, like, it's pure joy? Um, there's still a huge grappling with brokenness that we have today. We have these phones, but we also have a generation that's struggling with mental health more than ever. We had, and some of, the, some of the people who are struggling with that have done just wicked and terrible things. We've had as I did research, 246 mass shootings this year in our country. And again, I, I'm not trying to like, <laughs> I know that kind of lowers the mood, but, but there's something to that, that for all the good that, that's happening, we're seeing the same problem persist, that we really can't cure, cure our heart issues. And I, I think, you know, us still striving to try to figure out how do we allow for more human flourishing? How do we address these things? Do we legislate this way or not legislate that way are really important questions. I think those are things that can honor God, but I think we have to stop first and really ask, man, what do we actually hope to release us from our brokenness? Sometimes I think we're so caught up in this unbridled spirit of ambition and progress that we just rush into it and say, we're going to, you know, it's just going to work itself out on the back end. And other times, I think we can put our hope in, like, the very specific, you know, just do this, just do that. And, it, you know, Top Gun Maverick just came out. Great movie. Um, totally recommend it. But uh, I'm, I was really excited for it, so I was watching some stuff on YouTube. Uh, 
great way to waste time. Um, anyway, <laughs> uh, I watched this thing where James Corden, the late night host, actually got in a plane with uh, Tom Cruise. I didn't know this, but Tom Cruise is like a totally trained pilot. But James Corden didn't know that either. And so Tom Cruise is like, yeah, so if, if this happens and the engine goes out, I'm going to roll the plane over and then I'm going to just ploop you out. Like, ploop. And, <laughs> and James is like, I don't want you to do that. Like, just because you're a pilot in a movie does not mean you're qualified to, to do this. Like, you, I want someone who can actually fly planes. And again, Tom Cruise actually is that person, it turns out. But I just thought that question is really valid. As we think about addressing brokenness in our world and in our society, are we stopping to ask, are we actually qualified to, to, to solve the real problems? And again, I'm not saying let's not, let's not address these things. We have to. We have to figure out. Like, that's part of the divine image. That's part of our mandate. But what do we hope in to release us from the presence of sin? I don't think it's just the presence of sin that we need to worry about. I think it's also the effects. So we're going to return to Lamech's song uh, in verse 23. And it says this, Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. So what this poem is doing is it's communicating about an event that took place where a, someone, a, a man, sounds like a young man, attacked Lamech and he killed him. And there's that part of me that's listened to a lot of true crime podcasts that I'm like, okay, well, what did he attack him with? It was this justified, but, you know, parallelism is a big feature of Hebrew poetry. And so it's kind of contrasting this idea of wounding with this idea of killing. The indication of that is that this wasn't justified. And even Lamech going on to say, man, my revenge is greater than what the revenge that God had for someone who was a mur murdering a murderer, I think even emphasizes that all the more. But we see Lamech boasting in what he's done. And this is a really interesting reaction. Again, when we think about this escalation of sin, we think about the responses of people to sin. So Adam and Eve, they eat the fruit, and then they see their nakedness, and they're ashamed. They hide from God. And then they try to blame shift. You know, Cain murders Abel and kind of, you know, it's a little worse. He, he kind of sarcastically answers God, but when God reveals his punishment, he, he shrinks back. But now Lamech has murdered a man and he is boasting. It has become good. He's celebrating it. And it shows us that sin corrupts our view of what is good. And not only so, but I think sin also corrupts our view of God. I mentioned this earlier, but Lamech saying, man, my vengeance is greater than what God would lay out. That's a very prideful assertion. That a guy who admits, like, I was wounded is saying, my, my punishment is better than an immutable God's. And then even if you look at this, God is not, ab not, not present in this song at all. As I was studying for this time, I read a Martin Luther quote. Uh, it says that sin is man turning in on himself. And I think ultimately what we see in Lamech is that sin is corrupting him to his core, that sin corrupts and consumes us. And I think sometimes we want to kind of distance ourselves from Lamech. It's not every day that we see this in our country necessarily. We kind of have a, a shared set of morality. Generally, there's things that we may debate about. 
But this is true of us today. Sin has corrupted us. And, and the root of what Lamech is saying is, man, I am, I'm in charge. I am God. And what I do is good is the message that we actually probably hear from a lot of Disney movies. And that's incredibly dangerous. I was even thinking about a song that I liked in high school, if you guys know the song Pursuit of Happiness by Kid Cudi. The, the refrain of that is, I'm going to do just what I want, right? Like, and that's dangerous because we don't know what is good. Our view of good is wrong. Our view of God is wrong. And so as we look at this, we have to see that we are wicked. It's not just Lamech. This is a story of how sin is progressing through humanity, and if left unchecked, if nothing is done about it, we ourselves today are wicked. We are corrupted to the core. Isaiah tells us that our good deeds are like filthy rags before God, and Job tells us that before a holy God, we are speechless. We have no answer. And so I ask again, what can we hope in to release us from our brokenness, from this curse? Surely it is not us who have been deceived and corrupted. We cannot cleanse ourselves from something that we are perpetually stuck in. And I know that's kind of heavy. Again, going to sit in that just a little bit. Because there is hope. And, and the passage actually goes on to say, um, and to tell us about that hope. And it says, And Adam knew his wife, so we, we switch back to Adam. It says, And Adam knew his wife again. And she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. And at that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. So it's interesting, again, I don't have the text in front of me here, but to compare how Eve responds to Cain's birth versus Seth's birth. For Cain, she says, with God's help, I have brought forth this man. But now she's saying it's God who's appointed this. And it's interesting that, you know, Seth's name means appointed or put. Uh, that same word is used in Genesis 3.15, the, the proto-evangelion that Josh pointed out, you know, the first proclamation of the gospel in scripture, that God will put enmity between the serpent and the offspring of Eve so that this, the man one day will crush the head of the serpent, it's that same word. And so what Eve has done is she's now out of the picture completely, and she's looking only to God to be the source of the one who solves this problem. And even, I don't know, the names, again, cool in genealogies, but Seth has a son named Enosh, and what Enosh's name means is human. It means mankind, just like Adam. And there's a lot of ways people interpret that, but I think as I thought about it, our you know, New Testament, Jesus lends hope, is that we would become a new humanity in Christ. And so Eve is looking forward to those humans who would actually fulfill the, the image of God, who would live in freedom from sin and in unity with God. And that's not Enosh. We, we see that Enosh is going to show up in a genealogy next chapter that leads into another genealogy in Genesis 10, that leads into another genealogy in Genesis 11, that leads into another genealogy in Matthew 1. But out of that genealogy comes Matthew, or Jesus. <laughs> Plot twist. Um, <laughs> and in Jesus, God does appoint a son. 
And rather than, you know, giving fully over to his anger and punishing people 77 times, this son calls his followers to forgive 77 times. Rather than being susceptible to the presence of sin, this son pays for sin on the cross. And rather than allowing that to continue to corrupt his followers, he shows his power through his resurrection to eradicate it completely through the Holy Spirit whom he gives. And so just like Eve, we find true hope when we hope only in God because God gives us the Son. And so just to wrap up today, I want to ask, well, okay, that's true. That's amazing. Hey, sorry, let's pause there. God's so good. Uh, what mercy, what goodness that we actually have that true hope that he has made a way. What does that hope lead us to do? What is our response to it? And I want to put forward two things. The first, I think, is when we, when we hope truly in God, it means we've stopped hoping in ourselves. And that leads us into a place of humble repentance. You know, I think repentance can be kind of one of those tricky words. Uh, so I'll just define it as um, turning away from sin and turning to God. Or a change of mindset that leads to a change in action. And we see a lot of things in this passage that we may need to consider repenting of. There's very evident things like sexual morality. You know, we see the polygamy happening. There's violence and murder and anger. But then there's also some heart level root things too. There's pride and selfish ambition. And as God tells Cain, sin is crouching at our door. It's looking to consume us. It's, its desire is contrary to us. And so we have to take this seriously. If those things are present in our lives, we have to get them out. That's part of what hoping in God means, is no longer looking to ourselves to get them out, but looking to him. And I just want to say, if you've never done that, that, that last phrase and that, that last passage, to call upon the name of the Lord, it gets picked up on in Romans ten thirteen, and it says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you have never turned to God, if you've never looked to him and trusted in Jesus to save you from your sins, that invitation is here for you today. But for those of us who have, I think the call is that we'd be active in cooperating with God and the Holy Spirit and actually rooting out the sin that is present in our lives. Because he can provide cleansing and he can provide power to, through his Holy Spirit for us to walk in righteousness. So maybe in this list of sins that I gave, you know, sexual morality, violence, anger, pride, selfish ambition, there's something that stands out to you as something you might need to confess and work with God on how to turn from. But maybe not. Praise God for that. You're in a good place right now. I think our role is still to ask God by his Holy Spirit to search us so that we continue to be growing in him. Our call is to honor him in everything we do, and that leads me to the second point, our hope in God leads us to reverent worship. We see this development. I didn't talk about this much, that last verse in Seth's line. So, so we're in, in Cain's line, we see all this development of human civilization. We see, you know, awesome inventions and all this stuff. The development that's mentioned from Seth's line is that people begin to call on the name of the Lord. And really that just means to worship him, to pray to him, to, to look to him. And it's interesting too, just in a, on a side note, um, in this huge genealogy where a bunch of names are given, no one gives the Lord a name. He's above all things. 
And when we, when we call on the name of the Lord, we're practicing, rather than giving in to the sin that consumes us, we're, we're practicing being consumed by God, His goodness, His glory. We're honoring Him as He deserves, and as we've seen He deserves through this story. And so, I know Caleb talked a lot about worship last week, and I want to ask, what does it look like? Is, you've been, has, that, has that helped? What does it look like for you to worship in your daily life? This isn't just something we're going to do in the next 10 minutes. This is meant to be a heart posture that permeates our everything because he deserves our everything. And then to maybe get into a really practical place, what does your time with God look like? You know, I think sometimes we get into our reading plans and our prayer lists and we totally miss all the goodness and the glory of God. And I mean, just to look back on this passage, we recognize that God has a common grace for us, that he's given us things that we are able to to enjoy just because he's good to us. And not only so, but he's been faithful to his promise that he made thousands of years ago, his provision, and, you know, to rescue us in the gospel. Do Do we actually spend time just worshiping him at his feet, adoring the fact that he's done all of this for us and that it came at a great cost? Because I think we do need to spend time in our brokenness. We need, to let us hum- we need to let that humble us so that we can turn to him. But we also need to spend time rejoicing in him who's our true hope. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. Um, we're just thankful for today and the, the time to, to open up your word. Um, yeah, Lord, we thank you that you, you tell us the truth. Um, yeah, you reveal our brokenness. You reveal our need for you. And not only so, but you reveal your goodness to us and that you provide a way out. Man, I pray, God, that we would, would continue to just seek you in that. That we would, would look to you all the more in response to this message today. And I pray that we would just be able to worship you. That you would be glorified in our lives for all that you've done. God, we praise you and we love you. In your name, amen.